Lord, prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence us in any voices but your own so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. I'm going to be reading from the book of Titus, the very first chapter, the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. Amen. As David read, uh, we're going to look into uh, Titus chapter 1. And I'm going to read it real quick if y'all can put it up on the screen again. Starts out with verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hopes of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, Savior, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. Before we uh, really dissect this passage, uh, if you don't know about me, I want to give you a little info about me. Um, I'm very very into artsy stuff. I'm not going to say I'm an artistic guy because that would make me sound like I'm great, but uh, I'm into art, and so you can find me on Instagram, and you can be like, dude, you take Instagram way too serious, like, you make my photos look bad. I get that a lot, but I love art. I love going to museums, you know, on Thursdays, if you don't know, by the way, free uh, admission into the Museum of Fine Arts, uh, you're welcome, but you'll always find me there on Thursday, so I'll tell Andrew, hey, uh, you know, I'm done for work, but I'll actually just go to the museum, Uh, but I love art, and if you were to ask me to study the city of Houston, to study the people, to study the architecture, the buildings, the uh, culture, the food, um, even to the freeway system, and ask me what form of art best represents Houston. I'm sure all of you guys might have an idea. Some of you may not even have one name of a type of form of art. But that art that I would tell you represents Houston would be the art of doing your own thing. And uh, I think it's the society we live in and the culture we live in, especially the city we live in, that we all seem to tell each other, you know, do your own thing. That's, that's what true life means. That's what living the good life is, is just do whatever you think is best and life is going to be great. And when you die, you can say you had a great life. And it sounds freeing and it feels good, but obviously that creates this, this chaos, this atmosphere that we all have each other's opinions. And some are small, such as, is that my parking spot? Is that your parking spot? Uh, some are big, such as, what should we do with the poor? And so I ask you today, what are you doing? And so if I ask you, some of you might say, I'm doing my own thing, or I'm just, I'm okay. You know, I'm just, I'm just going with how the day goes, or I'm just going how life goes, or I'm going with the flow of life. And so you add this idea of just doing your own thing to millions of people and it creates a chaos, it creates pressure. 
There's a clash now of ideas, and we start having these conversations. Should I get divorced? Should I not? You know, are these business ethics, uh, are, are they good or are they not? Should I do them or should I not? And I believe this conflict in our society and in our culture uh, reflects that we have a conflict in between our hearts and inside of our hearts. So we're constantly asking ourselves, should I do this and should I not? And I ask you this morning, who or what is winning in your life today? Your behavior in the city expresses the belief in your soul. I think we would all agree that what you believe in will sooner or later come out in our actions or the way you speak. Uh, If you talk to me, you're probably going to hear about three things, Jesus, Instagram, and basketball. Uh, But it's because it's what I love. It's what I believe in. And uh, some are obviously not too serious. One of them really is. Uh, But I believe whatever you believe in, whatever you surround yourself in, it's going to come out sooner or later. Uh, And so I believe this house has created a storm. And the storm all around us, we, we're, we're constantly being bombarded. You know, we get this idea of, okay, do your own thing, but we're constantly being bombarded by, hey, you need to believe this, though, or you need to believe with me, or if we don't agree on this, then we, I don't know if we can be friends. I don't know if we can be in communion with one another. And this creates a storm. And it's almost uh, hypocritical of how our society says, do your own thing, but I also want you to believe what I believe. It's funny and it's ironic. And I also think the storm around us reveals a storm within us. So this leads us to the questions of how, so how should we live? How do we make choices? And I believe this letter that Paul writes to Titus explains, us, explains to us how we should live. Just a bit of background, Titus is just a man who's trying to create a community in this culture, just like Houston. Uh, creating a community in a culture of storm. And he was doing this in Crete which at the time would have been the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean. It would have been home to various cities. And so because of that, Crete would have had the responsibility of being a trendsetter. It would have created culture and also would have spread culture. But inside of Crete, you would have found two communities, and that would have been the pagan and the Jewish community. This, obviously, if you just think to yourself, it's going to create a, a chaotic atmosphere when it comes to ideas and opinions. So we're going to look at both of these communities communities and how they viewed Jesus. And first we look at the Jewish situation. They downplayed Jesus. In verse 10, if we continue in this letter, Paul says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. What Paul is trying to tell us is that the Jews did believe in Jesus. They did believe in salvation through Jesus, but they believed in a Jesus plus salvation. So believe in Jesus, but you have to do step one through five. You have to do A, B, and C, and then hopefully you will have salvation. The pagans, on the other hand, just flat out ignored Christ. If you read in this letter, Paul almost says that, that the pagans, they, they thought, the Cretans, they thought they were the original Greeks, which I kind of, I, I can, you know, identify with that because a lot of you guys and a lot of my friends, uh, they call me out for being hipster. And uh, I always think it's funny because even my roommate, you know, he'll say, man, you said you, you knew that song before it even came out. And I'm like, yeah, well, I kind of did, you know. But, uh, you know, I probably wrote it. They just didn't even know. Uh, but this is, the, I, you know, the mentality that the pagans had. They thought they were the first ones. They thought they were the original ones. And so they almost had this ego that they're above the rest of the Greeks. 
And so I believe that this is Houston. We have these two societies of we can rescue ourselves versus we don't need rescuing. The people who think we can rescue ourselves think they can do it through deeds. People that don't think they need rescuing just live life pleasuring themselves. You have the religious versus the non-religious. You have the legalist versus the lawless. And I was studying, I love this quote that an early theologian, Tertullian, said. He says that just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, the gospel is ever crucified between these two errors. And so now we have Paul, a messenger of faith, and Titus, who's man on the ground. Titus was an understudy of Paul for a while. And now Titus has been sent out to create this Christian community in Crete. And he, what he tells Titus is live transformed lives within of the culture, not of the culture. He doesn't say go outside the culture, flee the culture so you can have this Christian community. He says live in it, be, be in it, but don't be of it. And so he gives them specific instructions to empower Titus. And I believe these instructions in this letter that Paul writes to Titus uh, gives us four convictions. And four convictions that I'm talking about this morning. And I hope that this morning uh, you're able to settle these convictions in your hearts. I think as Christians, these are four issues that sooner or later we need to settle in our hearts or else, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to experience God to the fullest in our lives. So our four convictions are going to be who you are, how to live, why you believe, and what you need. So we're going to go into the first one, that's who you are. I believe the way that Paul views himself is the way we should view ourselves. And Paul says, I am a servant, I am an apostle of God, which now shows us that Paul believes that his past is no longer greater than his present or future because he has, met, he has met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. His life was changed. And I believe that God redeemed, but also used Paul. And that should be a great joy to, to us. And that shows God's great love to us. And not only does he forgive, but he also uses people with sins so awful, such as Paul. He was once persecuting the church that he is now trying to build. I think this, this leads us to the fact that sometimes some of us might have an identity crisis in the city. We try to fit in certain groups. And I have one sentence for you, and it's very simple to tell you who you are. And that's, you're a servant belonging to God. You used to serve yourself. You used to serve sin. And maybe you, don't, you haven't made that commitment yet. But I tell you that you're still a child of God. You still belong to God. And so where are you? Are you halfway are you keeping options open? Are you trying to find yourself? It's funny because I have uh, several friends in California, and uh, he's a believer, but every now and then he'll tell me, you know, I'm going to go to the Big Sur to, to find myself. And uh, I, I believe that's, that's pretty ironic, and it's almost funny how we, we have this mindset that we can find ourselves just by secluding ourselves when uh, all we need is to search for God. And God is searching for us. And so I ask you this morning, where are you? Are you halfway about your identity in Christ? Or maybe you're not even there. But not only are you a servant, you're sent. You're commissioned. Your life is no longer your own. It's been bought. So live like it. He made you. He redeemed you. And if you refuse this, I believe you've become a hindrance to what God wants to do in you 
And you can become a stumbling block to what God wants to do through you. I hope that as Neartown Church, our mission and our mindsets throughout the week is that we want to see people grow in their faith. We want to see people come to faith. And our mission should be not to just bring people to church, not to just only gather as a group, but to make those believers into disciples and disciple makers. In verse 1, Paul says, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, which shows to us that we have to live this life of knowledge and faith, which to you, you might think that clashes in and of itself. Those two can't live together. But I'll tell you that it can. This knowledge of God that we have leads to our faith. We simply just respond with trust. So are you your own person or do you belong to God? And if you have an answer to that question, you're probably asking yourselves, okay, second conviction, how do we live then? And like I said earlier, I believe this behavior that we live every day is an expression of our belief. But if we claim ourselves as Christians, we would also say that we have a new identity compared to the one we used to have before we met Christ. And I ask you, if you, if you embrace this identity, if you embrace God, I also ask you to embrace the truth and the change it brings. Paul continues in verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Godliness is something we need to pursue after. But I think sometimes we don't, need, we don't even know what godliness means. We don't know what it looks like. And so I ask you, what, what do you think godliness means? Do you, do you imagine an angry God? Do you imagine the perfect person? I know some people uh, that aren't believers that I'm close with even compare a godly person to Flanders off, you know, The Simpsons. And I'm like, well, I wish it was that easy, you know. I mean, I hope, I hope I'm not that annoying either. But uh, what do you think of godliness? Godliness in the ancient context was very commonly used. And it simply meant that you were in right behavior in line with what you believed in, which at the time would have been gods and goddesses for the Greeks. Gods and goddesses would have directed your lifestyle, the way you acted, the way you talked, the way uh, you just went about in your day. You just practiced what you preached. And I tell you this morning that godliness is not a goal of sinless perfection. It's about simply reflecting the God that loves you. And I plead that you pursue this. Godliness doesn't mean a relationship with God. It doesn't grant you a relationship with God. A relationship with God grants you godliness. Verse 16, Paul says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. I believe this is a perfect definition and perfect illustration of what hypocrisy looks like. And so I ask you this morning, if you're preaching a life-changing message, are you demonstrating a changed life? How well do you love people? Are you reflecting the God that loves you? Because I ask myself, how well do I love people? Because that gauges where I'm at. In my relationship with God, it gauges whether God is doing something in my heart or in my life. So godliness is showing others you belong to God. And this way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we talk, it's an opportunity for us to show who God is. 
It sounds very cliche. It sounds almost too easy, but it's true. But one thing is that you don't, you don't just wake up in godliness. It's a process. You grow in it. You walk with God day by day. You know, you wake up, you speak to God, you go to sleep, you speak to God. It's, it's stuff that we seem to, over, seem to overlook, but I can tell you that it makes a grand difference in our lives. And so everyone believes, everyone worships. I think we all could agree that we only have one choice, and that's what we worship. And so why do we believe? That's our third conviction. And I have one answer, and it seems too easy, too simple. But that's eternal life. But even as I say to you, we believe in God because of our hope in eternal life with him. Is that insane for us to believe? Is it hopeless? In verse 2 and 3, Paul says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, our Savior. So we ask ourselves, can God be trusted? Is this hope reliable? And I'll tell you that it is. First reason why is God promised it before you were even born, which shows to us that God didn't make this promise in reaction to our behavior. He didn't make these promises because he said, well, you guys near town church are behaving well. You guys are acting like Christians. You guys are loving me. You guys are worshiping me. You never fail me. Therefore, I make this promise. No, he made this promise knowing that we were going to fail him, knowing that we were going to live sinful lives. And yet he remains faithful to us. Second reason I think this hope is reliable is God never lies. God initi- or Paul initiates this critique of Cretan culture. And he calls out their God, which at the time would have been Zeus. And Zeus would have formed this idea in their culture that lying is acceptable. If you read the myth of Zeus, you would see that lying is okay because Zeus at one point lied to have a sexual relationship. Yet Zeus was still seen as their God. He was still seen as a character of courage and honor. But because he was Zeus, they still followed him. Because he was their God, they said, if Zeus lies, then I can lie. It's almost as if nowadays we don't see him anymore, but you would have, you would have seen the WWJD bracelets. Back then you would have seen WWZD. You know, they just really remained faithful to what, whatever Zeus did. That's what they did. And whatever Zeus said was okay, that's what, that's what was okay. And so if Zeus lied, I can lie. But what Paul does, he says, here's the true God, and he never lies, which would have broken silence in the room. And so I ask you this morning, has God lied to you? I know some of you feel like it. It's a real emotion. I know I've felt it at times. So what are those promises that, it, that he has broken or those promises you think he has broken? Because I know the Bible says he fulfills his promises. And so are these promises he has broken you know, promises that you're going to have tons of money, a certain job, your dream house, the perfect family. I tell you this morning that God will always break a promise he never made. We have this attitude of, God, you have to do this. And then he fails and he creates bitterness in our heart. But we ignore some promises he does make, such as if you follow me, you will 
suffer persecution. Uh, yeah, you don't see that on coffee cups or anything, right? So God never lies. He doesn't change. And this word God manifests, this promise, is the gospel. This thing that we, we are doing this morning, this Christianity, Christianity thing, it shows something happened in history. God spoke and acted in time and space in a way that we can see, test, and experience it. No matter how you felt about it yesterday, no matter how you feel about it this morning, today, or even tomorrow, the tomb of Christ is empty. And we can rest in this. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God promised it. He never lies. And the third reason I believe this hope is reliable is that the gospel doesn't first offer us a moral code. It offers us life. This good news that, that we carry is actually the good news that carries us. It's what I call grace. We can, we can walk every day knowing that we have grace. It's a beautiful thing. I know a lot of us have experienced it. I have, I have experienced it. That leads us to our fourth thing, and that's what you need. And I believe those are the blessings that God has given us. And the only two that I want to look at this morning is grace and peace. Grace is this undeserving favor of God. It's not because of our behavior. It's not because of our worthiness. It's not in us, but it's in him. And even this peace, when I think of this peace with God, peace of God, I think of my first experiences as a Christian. Even though I was a little kid, I remember waking up every now and then, and I would think, God, this is beautiful. You are with me. You're, you're here with me. We're together. This is awesome. I feel great. And that made me realize later on as I got older, and I'm getting older, that if I don't have peace, it might be because I don't have peace with God. That if I feel lonely or feel alienated, it might be might because be I don't feel that peace with God. But I tell you this morning that you can have it. You can have this peace. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I think we could all agree that we want grace and peace. But what's, what's awesome about this letter and what Paul writes is that he ends this word ends with this word Savior in this letter, in this introduction, which at the time also wouldn't have been a rare word for the Cretans. For them, it would have, it would have meant modern-day heroes. It would have been what we think of now as, uh, for kids, superheroes. You think of the Avengers, Superman, stuff like that. That's, that's some, it's a mythological word for the Greeks at the time. They would have thought of Zeus or Caesar. But what Paul does, he applies this word to God. And this would have shocked the Greek community, the Cretan community. And so I believe that Paul drops this theological bomb from Paul to the Greeks saying, God's saving activity doesn't come through us, but through Jesus Christ, the source of grace and peace. God's work in Jesus is life-changing possibility for me, 
for you, for your families, for your friends, for your work environment, for the city of Houston, for the world. And so I tell you this morning that you are bought. You are his. And if you know this, you will know grace and peace and joy. This is how good our God is. This is how much he loves us. And what would it look like if you worship as if you experience grace and peace every day? What would it look like on Monday? What would it look like on Tuesday? What would it look like on Sunday? What would our church look like if we were experiencing grace and peace? If we knew what that felt like? So what is the world saying? Do your own thing. But I ask you, what do you know? And if you don't know, I want to let you know that you have a Savior. And no matter your circumstance, it's going to be okay. And I think about the first verse of Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack what? Nothing. What's beautiful about the fact that God illustrates a shepherd and a sheep is that a sheep doesn't have a defensive mechanism. It's, it's almost wimpy. So why would God use sheep for us? Why would he use sheep to illustrate who we are in comparison to him? Something that I was studying this week is that back in the day or even now, a shepherd would get down on its knee and he would cover the face of the sheep with oil. And the reason why is because flies would get up in the nose of the sheep, lay eggs, and then those flies would get in the brain. And so sometimes you can even see sheep banging their heads on rocks out of frustration, trying to get rid of that annoyance in their heads. And I believe that almost paints a picture of what some of us or some of the people in our city look like. They're being bombarded by this unrestfulness, this annoyance in their life because they don't have peace with God. They haven't experienced this grace of God. But what's beautiful about this shepherd taking care of the sheep by putting oil on its face is that the sheep doesn't know what the shepherd's doing. The sheep doesn't know that it's, that it's putting oil on its head to protect it because he loves the sheep so much. And I believe that's a beautiful thing, that God loves you so much. He's going to protect you. And not only is he going to protect you, but he, he was willing to give his one and only son to die for you. And so I tell you this morning that we do have a Savior this hope is reliable. We can trust God. And best of all, the tomb of Christ is empty. And that's a hope we can rely on.